Hey there, true believers. Welcome to the Task Force X Headcast, a proud member of the Headcast family. I am your host, as always, Aaron Moss, otherwise known as Brother Head. The Task Force Headcast follows the adventures of DC Comics' Task Force X. Task Force X was made up of the Suicide Squad comic, created by John Ostrander and Ryan Scott, which started in the late 80s, and the sister comic, Checkmate, which was created by Paul Kuppenberg and Steve Irwin. These were the two sides of DC's Espionage comics. I will attempt to chronicle each title and all the books that Suicide Squad and Checkmate appeared in during this era. Hope you guys have as much fun with these comics as I did when I first read them, oh so many years ago. Now, before we get started, let's hear a word from a friend of the show. Currently, I don't have any ads for any other shows or anything, so at this point, I'm going to pimp a podcast that I'm currently listening to myself and enjoying. This week, I'm going to mention the same headcast, or actually podcast, I did in my first episode of Head Speaks. My other headcast. I'm referring to the Fodder, Fire, Fire, Fodder? Fire and Water podcast. It can be found on iTunes. Also on Facebook and Google+, Plus. you can look for either Firestorm Fan or the Aquaman Shrine. Their websites are fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com or firestormfan.com and finally theaquamanshrine.net I'll have links for these on my website. The Fire and Water Podcast talks about one of the greatest heroes ever, Firestorm. The water portion refers to Aquaman, of course. Shag Matthews is currently reviewing the old Firestorm series from the 80s, since Firestorm's currently book current book has been canceled. He started on the first issue and is going through each issue in order. Then Rob Kelly reviews and talks about the current Aquaman series, and also they're talking about Aquaman and the others. Again, he started with issue 1, and is currently up to issue 31 or so. They also have another podcast they do, which is part of their Fire and Water podcast, called Who's Who in the DCU. This podcast is dedicated to going over each issue of the DC Comics Who's Who from the late 80s and early 90s. They plan on covering the entire 26-issue run of Who's Who, the two update series, the Loose Leaf Binders, the Who's Who in the Legion, Who's Who in Star Trek, and whatever else Who's Who DC's pet out. It's like a 26-year 26 26-year 26 mission they've got going on. Uh, if you're a fan of DC Comics, or you just love good comics in general, I recommend you check out their podcast. This is the inaugural episode of Task Force X. As I said in the intro, Task Force X is the name of a government organization within the DC Universe that handles espionage and spycraft within the DC Universe. Task Force X is a family-friendly headcast. Kids of all ages should be able to enjoy it. Now, before going any further, let me introduce myself. My name is Aaron Moss. My friends call me Aaron or Head. I'm married, and I have two boys, a girl, and a fourth child on the way. I've loved superheroes all my life. I grew up on the Dozer's 66 Batman, the Super Friends cartoon, the Bill Bixby Incredible Hulk TV show, Hammond's Spider-Man, all of that. Now, I said I was a superhero fan, but I wasn't what you'd call a comic book fan. I enjoyed the few I read, but I never actively went out and searched for comics growing up. I'd pick up the occasional comic or two or digest at yard sales on the occasion, but for some reason, I never picked up comics as they came out at the store. I don't know why. Oh, probably because we were poor and I didn't want to burden my mom. I don't know. Anyways, so I grew up loving superheroes. When I became a teenager, at some point, a friend of mine gave me a huge box of comics. It was mostly pre-crisis DC comics. There was Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, The World's Finest, The Brave and the Bold, etc. I loved through those, and I, I read them all, and I loved them all. Also, at that time, I, I enjoyed watching the G.I. Joe cartoon back in the mid-80s. Uh, I enjoyed the toys a little bit here and there. Uh, eventually, I picked up an issue of G.I. Joe from 1987 that was on the shelf. Uh, that led me, I'll, again, I also watched the Transformers cartoon, and uh, I found the Headmasters series on the shelf at the local supermarket or something, so I picked that up, and that led into the Transformers comic, so I, I bought the Transformers comic. Uh, then I started going to the comic shops looking for back issues of G.I. Joe, Transformers, i find other comics on the shelf I like. I'd start picking them up. One thing led to another. Eventually, I'm spending $100 a week easily at the comic shop. I'm just a big old comic book geek. 
I may have got a late start, but I finally pulled into him full force. Now, I tell you that story to tell you this story. One comic I started picking up was a comic called Suicide Squad. I want to say I picked it up with issue 22 or so from November of 88. Uh, this comic featured a handful of villains, some I'd never heard of. I liked the comics, so I started backtracking them, and eventually found, ended up with all of them, and I started buying them regular. Uh, it was basically it's a comic book showing the adventures of criminals being used to do some good in the world. What a concept. I picked up every issue as it came out once I discovered the comic. For the most part, it had fantastic art, wonderful stories, not just an adventure and then nothing more. But to me, Ostrander showed that the lives of these heroes and the supporting characters, he made you love them. When one of them died, and they did die, you know they would, because it's called the Suicide Squad. Uh, you actually cared when one of them died, or at least I did. These weren't just comic book characters. To me, these were living, breathing people with lives and families. Some of the villains actually had motivation for doing what they wanted to do. I want to thank you, John Ostringer, for creating a wonderful comic and giving us characters that we all care about. Now we flash forward, fast forward to 2011. <coughs> Excuse me. DC had their big flashpoint event, which they used to recreate their universe. The New 52. New origins, new stories, a complete restart. Well, not a complete restart, but that's a story for another headcast. In fact, I'll probably tackle that on an episode of Head Speaks here in upcoming months. Uh, anyways, one of the rebooted titles was The Suicide Squad. That a newer, younger, thinner Amanda Waller. I guess this is the right place to start with Amanda. It's one of my biggest complaints of the new 52. As we'll get to later, Amanda Waller in The Suicide Squad, when I first started, was a large, beefy woman. Her nickname was The Wall. Why? Well, she, was, she looked like a wall. She would go to toe-toe -to, -toe to Batman and not back down. She was imposing. She was a woman I would not want to make angry. She was fantastic. Now, in the new 52, she's younger, skinnier, more attractive. Looks more like a supermodel than an opposing powerhouse. And don't get me wrong. Don't start sending in hate mail. The young, beautiful women out there, they can hold their own. They can hold important positions. They can be a powerhouse in their own right. I'm not knocking that. But that's not the wall. The wall looks like a wall. It's part of her charm. She didn't care about how she looked. She's got the job done. And darn it, she was the woman that could do it. Unfortunately, uh, The Wall was a victim of the CW, CWing, as I call it, of the DC Universe. Everyone needs to be younger, more attractive, looks like a 20-something post-tweener. Even Deadshot, which will be in future episodes, was made younger and had his mustache removed. Poor Floyd and Amanda, both victims of the CWing CW of the DCU. Anywho, I'm starting to digress here. I was talking about Ostrander's Suicide Squad. As you might gather, I enjoyed these comics. Also around that time, I started picking up the Checkmate comic book in its early issues. I can't remember which one now. Uh, I may have gotten Checkmate before I found the Suicide Squad. It's been a few years ago. My memory's not what it was. Alright, it never was what it was. But long story short, I bought and read both Suicide Squad and Checkmate. <laughs> Back in the late 80s, early 90s, I picked up almost every DC and Marvel comic they put out. Yeah, I was that guy. Now, let's fast forward to June of 2013. Me and a friend of mine, Sue Sturgeon, Hey Sue! We went to San Francisco to check out Jason Mew's new cartoon, Jay and Silent Bob's cart groovy cartoon movie. Jay and Silent Bob's groovy cartoon movie. While there, him and Kevin Smith recorded a podcast, Jay and Silent Bob Gets Old. The podcast was created to help keep Jason Mewes off drugs and keep him clean and sober. Last I heard, he's, uh, I think he's approaching four years sober now. Good job, Jay. Anywho, during the Q&A portion, Kevin Smith gave us all a homework assignment. He said over the next year, go out and record a podcast. Doesn't matter what, just record it. So, this is my assignment. Actually, I'm going for extra credit, since my original headcast was a day or two late. This is the second headcast I've started. The first one, which just came out, about two weeks ago, is called Head Speaks. It's named at more of a mature audience, and it does contain some adult language, and could possibly contain adult content and conversations. Also, in that one there, if you want to hear, I play the clip from that podcast I attended. So, anywho, here we are with Task Force X. Unless I find a co-host, I'll be handling the hosting duties alone. I had one guy lined up, but things fell through, and it just didn't work out. So, you get to my listen to my lone voice by itself. Lucky you. 
But besides my own site at headspeaks.com, let me also direct you to a sister site for more Suicide Squad talk and goodness. You can go to suicidesquad.blogspot.com for further, for further information and more talk about the Suicide Squad. That isn't my site, but it's put together by another guy that loves the Suicide Squad. Go check it out. Tell Marin sent you. Not that it'll get you anything, but you know, what the heck. Anyways, I guess that's, that's enough preamble. Let's get on with this show. Task Force X is made up of two groups. One called Checkmate, and another called Suicide Squad. Following the crisis on Infinite Earths, the Suicide Squad was significantly overhauled, becoming a team of supervillains who were uh, pulled into doing black ops missions for our government. The initial version of the team consisted of Rick Flagg, Deadshot, Bronze Tiger, Enchantress, Blockbuster, and Captain, Captain Boomerang. Uh, the team underwent constant changes in the lineup, Most member, with some members remaining for multiple missions, some stayed for only a mission or two. Uh, most of the members were criminals, but some non-criminals joined the team for various reasons. The premise of the team itself was that if the criminals survived enough missions, they got released from prison early. Uh, keeping in mind the name of this team was Suicide Squad, uh, not everybody survived all the missions. The Suicide Squad was ran by Amanda Waller, a.k.a. The Wall, a large African-American woman that can chew up nails and spit out bullets. An imposing figure that could, like I said previously, she can stand toe-to-toe to Batman. At least the wall that I like was. In recent years, they've given her a facelift and made her more like a CW person. In the new 52, everyone needs to be young, skinny, and beautiful. Personally, I like the old universe characters a little better. has more diversity in how they looked. Uh, maybe I'm just an old fuddy-duddy. I don't know. Anyways, at this point, let me know what you think. You can email me at taskforcex at headspeaks.com. If you're reading the new 52 and you read the old Suicide Squad, tell me, how do you think it compares the new 52 to the old DCU? I plan on covering all the Suicide Squad and Checkmate comics from the 80s until the books ended in the 90s. Depends on my mood, I may cover some of the later series, but I'm not quite sure yet as I didn't care for those as much. But I guess it all depends on whether you listeners want more or not. If I cover the later series, again, it depends on how much feedback I get and whether I can force myself to reread some of those books. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they could be better than I thought they were. Uh, the format of this show will be laid out as follows. Each episode, I will more than likely have a character profile. I'll pick a member of the Suicide Squad, Checkmate, or a supporting character, give you a little information about, about them so you get to know them a little better. I'll give you their first appearance, some background information, and then any media appearances I can find. Uh, depending on the issue, there may be two or three character profiles slipped in there. The character I profile will usually be making their debut in that issue, the comic, or an upcoming issue. Uh, then we'll cover the first comic that I'm going to talk about. I'll recap the issue for you and give you my review. I'll be covering Suicide Squad, Checkmate, and some other issues they've appeared in, such as Firestorm and Manhunter, and also some of the DCU crossovers that the Suicide Squad and or Checkmate has appeared in, such as Legends... Millennium, Invasion, and also the Janus Directive, which is DCU's 11-part crossover involving Suicide Squad, Checkmate, Firestorm, Manhunter, and Captain Atom. I'll possibly have another character profile, again, depending on which covers and which characters are appearing. I'll then follow that up with a second issue review. Occasionally, I'll have a third issue review also. Uh, if I can cover a storyline of th uh, three issues in an episode, I'll try to do that. Uh, finally, once I start getting some letters in, I'll end the issue with the letters page, where I'll read emails sent in by you, yes, you, the listener. Feel free to write me at taskforcex at headspeaks.com. Feel, feel free to bring up any issues you may have, compliments, critiques of the show, whatever you feel like saying. Well, I hope you all enjoy this headcast as much as I enjoyed reading these comics. Now, let's start with the Suicide Squad's origins. Uh, we're going to delve back here a little bit. Uh, we're going to start before I actually started reading the comics. I've just read some of these. Uh, the Task Force, try that again. The Suicide Squad has its roots in the World War II era Suicide Squadron, a team of expendable soldiers brought together to take on dangerous missions. Following the end of the war, the team was absorbed by Task Force X, converted by the government into a covert force that could be used to carry out black ops while allowing the government a degree of plausible, plausible diability just like our government. Isn't it wonderful? In its earliest appearances, the Suicide Squad 
was a team of heroes, if you will, conceived as a replacement for the Justice Society of America. This version of the team consisted of Rick Flagg Jr., Jess Bright, Dr. Hugh Heavens, and Karen Grace. The Suicide Squad was originally created by Robert Kaniger and Ross Andrew. They appeared in like six issues of The Brave and the Bold, three of them right before the Just League appeared. Uh, we'll cover these first three issues in this episode. That was, issue F, that was The Brave and the Bold, issues 25, 26, and 27. Uh, the next episode we'll cover, we'll cover their next four appearances, which is The Brave and the Bold 37, 38, 39, and Action Comics 552. And then we'll finally start covering what I, my era of the Suicide Squad, which was significantly overhauled by John Ostrander and basically made a new team. Uh, the Suicide Squad first appeared, my Suicide Squad that is, first appeared in the Legends 6 issue crossover, which I'll probably cover in episodes 3 and 4. Uh, this should lead into Legends, sorry, that should lead into Secret Origins 14, which bridges the original Suicide Squad with the current one. And finally, what you're here for, the Suicide Squad number one. A couple more episodes down the line, Checkmate will start up, and I'll be covering both books going back and forth. I'm trying to cover them as though they were released. Um, so, on my first episode, and the Suicide Squad, from The Brave and the Bold, issues 25 through 27. The Brave and the Bold, for those that don't know, was an old anthology series featuring adventure tales from past ages with characters such as Silent Night, Viking Prince, Golden Gladiator, Robin Hood. With issue 25, DC reinvented the title as a tryout title for new characters and concepts, starting with our very own Suicide Squad, which, as I said, was created by writer, writer Robert Kaniger and artist Robert... Ah, try that again. And artist Ross Andrew. Issue 28 of The Brave and the Bolt introduced a new team. I don't think they went anywhere. They were called the Just League of America or something like that. Actually, after two appearances in that title... They got their own title. Uh, this issue, we're going to start with The Brave and the Bold, issue 25. We'll start off the cover. It shows the Suicide Squad fighting some, fighting some, against some sort of monstrous paw, almost reptilian in nature, bursting through some ice. The bottom corner, it states, Introducing America's Top Secret Weapon. It reports never before released to the world. Mission number one, The Three Waves of Doom. Uh, not a bad-looking cover, I mean, especially for the era and the time. Uh, not bad at all. Uh, all three of these issues was written by Robert Kaniger, art by Ross Andrew, inker was Mike Espinoza. Esp Esp Esposito? I'm terrible with names, so Esposito, I believe it is. Uh, the editor was Robert Kaniger. The sale date was June uh, 25th, 1959, for the low, low price of 10 cents for 24 pages of story, uh, had a cover date of August, September, 1959. Oddly enough, I couldn't find any credits in the book itself. Uh, this information I found via the great site of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which is located at dcindexes.com. Again, I, I should have uh, links for that on my website. So, uh, we go on to the first page. We have a little splash page showing a lizard-type creature crashing through a roller coaster with the Suicide Squad members running away. Rick Flag shooting at it. Uh, decent enough art. Not my favorite. By all means, it's not bad. It is a very action-oriented action scene. Uh, this was back in the days when a lot of times the first page would be a splash page showing something that's going to happen later in the comic. And the covers usually depicted something that was in the comic. Unlike nowadays, a lot of times it's just like a, uh, a shot of something else that doesn't really... It may or may not show up in the comic, but that's I'm, I'm getting off topic now. Um, so we start with the story itself. The story starts with a red wave forming from the explosion in the ocean. This red wave starts washing towards shore, causing some polar bear swimmers to run away in terror. Uh, in case you're not sure what that is, a polar bear swimmer is some of these morons that go out where it's like in the Arctic. They strip down to either naked or their skivvies, and they jump in the water and swim in the freezing cold water. Uh, I don't think so, Bucky. Give, give me a heated pool any day. Uh, or at least a regular pool on a warm day, a nice cold pool, but not no, not Arctic temperatures, freezing water, I don't think so. Anyways, back to our story. Uh, one of the runners that's running onto the beach comments that the wave is so hot that their breath isn't fogging up anymore, frosting up anymore. 
Also, as the wave crashes into the sand on the beach, it's so hot it fuses the sand into glass. Firefighters, they show up and they start hosing down the red wave, but the water evaporates instantly and their hoses start melting, as it says in the comic, like butter in a frying pan. Also, the firemen notice there's a strange shape within the wave, like something sleeping. Finally, bombers show up and drop foam bombs to put the fire out, but it just gets swallowed up by the wave. Tendrils of flame then reach out and swat the bombers out of the sky. So we cut to the military showing them it's time to call in the Suicide Squad. This is where we're introduced to Colonel Rick Flagg, the leader of the Task Force X, a.k.a. the Suicide Squad, who conveniently enough is reminded by this of a previous mission by the Red Wave. In the previous mission, the rest of his squad mates are blown out of the air, leaving him alone. Suddenly, out of nowhere, over the intercom, he hears phantom voices of his squad mates telling him, it's up to him to carry on for them. It's up to you. Carry on. Carry on. Using their sacrifice to drive him on, he destroys the enemy plane, leaving Rick Flagg alive to carry on for his men as a member of the Suicide Squad. Which then introduces to the other members of the team, his pseudo-girlfriend Karen Grace, and there's two scientists, Jess Bright and Dr. Evans. When suddenly, their world, by an intense heat, causing them to head straight for the red wave. Followed by four pages of ads. Uh, we return to our story, uh, with the plane going down, uh, causing Karen to have a flashback instantly enough, or coincidentally enough, to a time that she was in another plane crashing. This time they were in the Pacific. She finds herself, the plane's crashed, she's on the wing of the plane, trying to pull a wounded soldier onto the wing with her. Not wanting to drag her down also, he sacrifices himself so he can save her. As he slips under the wave, she hears his voice coming from the mounting wave saying, Fight them for me! Fight them for me! As she carries on the military, always remembering the soldier that gave his life for hers. Until she meets Colonel Rick Flagg, falls in love with him. Uh, but Rick tells her that we cannot be together. We can't keep our vows to our dead friends if we allow ourselves to be happy and be together. We must not be together for our, our dead friends. It's kind of corny if you ask me, but yeah, it's the late 50s, early 60s, I guess that was in. Uh, back in the present, Rick releases the bombs, causing an explosion in the red wave, which causes turbulence to allow the plane to right itself so it's no longer crashing. Bright and Evans then tells Rick and Karen that they have a plan to stop the creature by bombarding it with absolute zero cold. So they they can fly through the edge of the red wave, bombarding with absolute zero cold, causing the red wave to freeze, is their theory. Uh, so they do that. Luckily, they have some stuff on board that can cause it to get absolutely cold in there and freeze them. Um, <coughs> Bright and Evans goes to... Ex examine the mysterious shape within the ice, uh, formerly the red wave, while Rick and Karen go to test, check on a test rocket that's going to the moon. Rick comments how he wishes they were going to the moon, and Karen says that when they're ready for human passengers, they'll be the first ones to go. Uh, just in case you miss it, this is called foreshadowing, kids. Keep an eye on this scene. Uh, we then cut back to the scene of the frozen red wave, where we find that both Bright and Evans are also in, also in love with Karen, and so, for the good of the team, Rick tells, them that, tells her that they cannot be together. Uh, Rick, and Jer Rick and Karen join the other two as a myst mysterious lizard-like creature breaks out of the ice and attacks our heroes. The four heroes run away from the monster, which... Uh, sorry, let's try that again. The four heroes run away from the monster, firing at it. And their bullets have no effect on the creature. As the creature chases Rick and Karen... It freezes everything it touches, including a roller coaster. The Task Force X lures the creature towards the sea to keep it away from innocent people. As the plane flies out further into the ocean, the creature stays near the shore, picking up objects, freezing them, and then using them to attack the, the uh, plane, like picking up a sub and throwing it at him. Rick tries firing a missile at the creature, but the creature catches the missile and freezes it. Uh, the two scientists, they... They're smart. They're scientists, I guess. So, you know, they know that salt can be used to melt ice. So they decide to spray the creature with some sodium magnetite. Again, they happen to have on board. Lucky for them. But instead of stopping the creature, 
it starts to change, and instead of freezing everything, it extracts, starts extracting chlorophyll from living matter, which basically is causing the landscape to turn black and white, which, oddly enough, reminds Brighton Evans of a time that a nuclear test bomb went off prematurely, uh, and they were saved from that explosion because their jeep had broke down. They get to the lookout station as it's just crumbling, and they hear voices warning them to stay away and carry on for them. Carry on. Carry on. Oddly enough, just like Rick and Karen did. Then they have an idea. Or back in the present, that is. They have an idea. To lure the creature to the rocket that we saw earlier. Good thing they set that up for us. Uh, the four crew members jump into the rocket. The creature grabs onto it, and they blast off into space. The ship flies towards the sun, and they veer away at the last second, and the sun's gravitational pull is able to pull the creature off the ship, but they're still able to fly away. So the creature's in orbit around the sun, the suicide squad has been freed, and now they have to get back to Earth. To be continued. Dun dun dun! Alright, my notes on the story. Overall, it wasn't a bad story. Not bad for a story from 1959, I guess. There's a few problems here and there, of course, but overall, I enjoyed the story uh, as a whole. I thought the entire crew here in the voice was a bit contrived. Each member, had they saw something that reminded them, coincidentally enough, of a time when the rest of their crew died, and they all had some mysterious voices. I don't know. I, it, <coughs> I, they could have done that better, I think. I just wasn't happy with that. It seemed very challenging and unknown to me. It also seemed very convenient that they happened to have the sodium magnate on board, as I mentioned. Uh, also, all three men being in love with Karen sounds very, I don't know, sitcomish to me. But I guess with a story from back in 1959, I, I guess I go along with it. What the heck? Uh, the art, while not being fantastic, it was pretty good, and it was a sol solid artwork throughout the story. Uh, overall, it was a very solid introduction to the Suicide Squad. Uh, even though this team actually bears nothing in similar with the team that will come later, not a bad story. Now, we move on to The Brave and the Bold, issue 26, cover dated October-November 1959. But, if you are using Shag Matthews' Wayback Machine, you're going to want to set that bad boy for August the 25th of 1959, when this actually came on sale. Uh, it had a 25-page count for the low, low price of 10 pennies. Uh, once again, as I pre previously, the writer and editor is Robert Kenniger, the pencils by R Ross Andrew, and the inker is Mike Esposito. This issue, we get two stories. That's right, two stories for the low price of ten cents. Uh, the first story is entitled, The Sun Circle. A synopsis of the story is going to be a bit briefer than the last one. After towing the creature into the sun, the Suicide Squad plots a course back to Earth. Strange radiation from meteors cause the team to shrink, uh, much like one of my favorite heroes, the Atom, will later on do. He'll shrink down. Uh, when the rocket finally crashes into the ocean, they escape, finding res refuge aboard a matchbox. The team finds themselves behind enemy lines and uncovers a planned atomic strike against the United States. Using their small size to stay hidden, the team sabotages an enemy, ba enemy base, then they escape by a plane. Uh, they begin their normal size, just in time to take off and return home at the end of the story. Uh, back to the cover. The cover shows the team on a matchbox, fighting off a seagull, a seagull with a lit match. Very nice cover. If I was a kid back that was in the comics back in 1959, I definitely would have picked up this comic on the cover alone. Uh, I've always been a sucker for stories of people shrinking down to small sizes. I don't know what it is. But yes, I would have picked this up. Uh, so the story picks up from the last panels of the previous comic, where the Suicide Squad has just gotten rid of the monster, and is plotting their way back to Earth. Brighton Evans being, uh, of course, plotting it back, doing the plotting for the course. Uh, one of them happens to pull a matchbox out. I mentioned the same matchbox we see from the cover, just to let us know that we have them. Uh, they make a line that the, they're lucky the rocket was... Try that again. They make a comment that they're lucky that the rocket was well-stocked. Uh, again, a little foreshadowing. We get that a lot back in these days, it looks like. As the ship heads back to Earth, Rick sends some information back to the scientists so they know how traveling in space will affect humans. That way, if they don't make it, at least the scientists will know what happens when humans go out into space. 
On the way back, they realize the autopilot is falling way too slowly, and with their calculations, they're going to miss their course they set for the Earth. So Rick turns off the autopilot, and he uses something they call meteor bumpers. Or he turns off the meteor bumpers, which helps keep the meteors away from them, apparently. And he manually flies them through a meteor storm, using the rocks to bump into them to speed them up, so they can get back on course. Uh, this course, this maneuver, of course, speeds them back up. As they get near the Earth, they realize that either the solar rays or the meteors, something, is causing them to shrink to mere inches in height. Soon, they're unable to reach the controls, with the control still on manual control. Uh, they realize they're going way too fast, and have no way to pilots. So they build a little human pyramid, and Karen's able to jump from where they're at to the controls to reactivate the autopilot, which allows them to come in, and they crash into a lake. Uh, in the lake, Evans and Bright discover some subs with a wolf insignia. They're carrying atomic warheads. Soon the four people surface, and they might find the matchbox from earlier, and they all climb on board. And we, then we finally get the scene from the cover, with Seagull attacking the four people and them using a match to fight off the bird. Luckily, they're able to light that wet match off, and it goes off. They scare the bird away using the lit match. They then use other matches to row ashore of the enemy stronghold. There, they're able to use the machine gun somehow to knock down one of the enemy soldiers. They jump up and they're able to hit the barrel of the gun and swing it and make it fly around and knock the guard out. Uh, they then use the machine gun to set off some oil drums, causing the enemy camp to just catch on fire and burn to the ground. As it's burning, uh, they jump back into the water onto their matchbox raft, and they row towards a seaplane. They get to the plane, climb aboard, and one of them comments out there at normal size, Rick could fly them away. Conveniently at this time, the radiation or whatever it is wears off, and they revert back to their proper size, and Rick is able to whisk them away from all the turmoil. Once again, another decent story. Had a lot of 50-style story conveniences, as far as I can tell. I'm not sure the match should be able to light after being soaked in the lake, but you know what? I believe a man can fly. I guess these wa matches are waterproof. Uh, again, a good story. Taking last issue story and half of this one to tell the origin, or the first tell of the Suicide Squad. Finding a monster, getting rid of it, and getting back to Earth, and fighting some more enemies. Uh, it wasn't bad for an issue and a half. The current comics, this, this storyline would probably take 6 to 12 issues easily. Uh, a final note on this story, it's convenient that the radiation, or whatever it was, finally wore off when it did, though I guess most super, superhero stories rely, rely on convenience of timing, so I guess I can't say much about that and not be a superhero fan, you know? Anywho, uh, the second story in this uh, issue is called Serpent in the Subway, by the same creative team as before. A synopsis of this story... Rick and the team are granted furlough in Paris after their adventures. While on a subway, while on a Paris subway, a monstrous serpent attacks and wrecks the train. The squad rescues the passengers and attempts to battle the monster. Their weapons prove useless against it, finding that it can breathe on air or water. Finally, they construct a giant plastic bag, which they tie around the serpent's head, suffocating it. Hmm. I don't know if this was a great story. Honestly, I don't know. It had a decent premise. One thing that's getting a little annoying is they keep mentioning that the whole team's loving Karen. Karen and Rick have to keep their love a secret so it doesn't damage the team. <coughs> it's it, They mention it every story. It's getting a little, I don't know, it's a little annoying if you ask me. But uh, Also, at the very end, they make a, a giant plastic bag that's able to go over the snake's head. I thought it was kind of silly, but I guess that was par for the course for the 50s and 60s. All in all, a decent little mini-adventure. Um, like I say, the art's by the same team as the rest of the story, so it's consistent. Possibly it'll grow on, it's growing on me a little bit, possibly. I don't know. It's, it's not bad. It's just not modern art, in my opinion. But, you know, what do I know? Uh, though I do like the safety warning at the end of this issue. After their adventure ends, the crew sitting on a bench, commenting how do they can enjoy their furlough. 
as that was hopefully the last of the dinosaurs. Then there's a little blurb. Attention readers, we add our warning to those already printed. Do not allow children to play with plastic bags. And then the final note from DC Comics to write in if you want more stories of the Suicide Squad. Now, on to the final issue I'm going to cover, The Brave and the Bold, issue 28. According to our friends over at Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this issue was cover dated December, January of 1959, but was released back on good old October the 27th, again, of 1959. This one is a full-length, 25-page story for, once again, a single dime. One dime for 25 pages of story. Nowadays, for 20 pages of story, you're going to pay anywhere from, what, $2.99 and up? Uh, this one here, let me see. The cover, it shows Rick and Karen in the foreground being knocked off water skis by some giant magenta monster uh, with their boat and two of, their two other friends being thrown around in the background. The cover, once again, states, Mission 3 of the Suicide Squad, never before released. The Creature of Ghost Lake. The synopsis of this story, prior to testing a new nuclear bomb, the members of the Suicide Squad visit the lab of Doc, uh, Professor Duane. A giant moth attacks their plane, but Colonel Flagg uh, manages to land safely. When they reach the lab, the team discovers that the professor is missing. The lab itself has been damaged by lightning. The team speculates that the lightning caused one of the professor's formulas to cause the moth to grow. This Formula X changes the caterpillar into a giant. After fighting it off, the Suicide Squad then begins searching for Professor Duane. Suspecting that the professor may have been kidnapped by an enemy agent near Ghost Lake, the team goes undercover. A giant monster arises from the lake and captures Karen. The creature also takes the nuclear bomb that is being tested. The rest of the team follows the creature, hoping to find a way to defeat it without harming Karen. When the creature nears a populated area, Rick orders the creature to be knocked out, regardless of Karen's safety. She survives, and Rick manages to disarm the first stage of the bomb. The creature is then towed out to sea, where the second stage of the bomb kills it. With no sign of Professor Duane, the team speculates that he might have been transformed into the creature by Formula X. Dun dun dun! Formula X. Okay. I don't know if it's just me. I'm not. I didn't quite enjoy this story as much. They're okay. I, I don't know. I'm not. If I was reading Suicide Squad and these were the stories I was reading, I may not be doing the, the headcast today. But oh, maybe it's just the Golden Age style of repeating things they've told us previously, or maybe I just know what's coming up in a couple of episodes, and I can't wait to get to the good stories. I'm not sure what it is. As I've said previously, the art's decent, especially for the times. It wasn't bad art. Uh, I know some people may say sacrilege is great art. Again, art's, you know, subjective. Each person's opinion is their own. Story-wise, the team is told that they have an experimental bomb that goes off in two stages. The first bomb goes off, and then four hours later, the second one will go off, and nothing will stop it. Uh, the group flies towards Ghost Lake to Professor Duane's lab. Uh, Karen, once again, professes her love for Rick. Uh, Rick, once again, says, you know, for the good of the team, we cannot be together, blah, blah, blah. Uh, while flying, they find a giant, mysterious moth. Uh, they avoid the moth. They land at the professor's lab, which they find destroyed. There's notes laying all around talking about a failed experiment and making things larger. They find a test tube on the ground with a caterpillar crawling inside of it. Uh, we know this is not going to end well. But they don't think nothing of it. As a reader, I know, well, you know what? I can see that coming. <clears throat> I don't know if we're supposed to, or if writers back then was writing for younger kids, probably. They, they you know, comics used to be just for kids, so maybe, I don't know. Anyways, Caterpillar's crawling inside the tube. Uh, as they're looking around, they find a notebook with a drawing inside of it, uh, of a monster. As they leave, the, we see the Caterpillar starts growing and attacking our heroes. They theorized that the lighting hit the lab, changing the chemicals that the professor was working on into Chemical X. Chemical X. Isn't that what created the Powerpuff Girls? Sugar, spice, everything nice? We know what's in this formula now. It turns the little girls into Powerpuff Girls, 
and it makes creatures become monstrous giants. Anyway, so they fight off the caterpillar. They use their jet engines to burn the caterpillar up. They once again make mention of the unmentionable love. And for the sake of the team, they can't be together, blah, blah, blah. As the team starts looking for the missing professor, the creature that was from the drawing earlier shows up and attacks them, which we see on the cover. Uh, again, remember when the cover actually showed a scene from the comic that it wasn't just a pinup? I love those days. Uh, then we see the team trying to stop the creature without hurting Karen. Because the creature has Karen in one hand, as I mentioned earlier, and the bomb in the other hand. They're able to free Karen, and they lure the creature out far enough where when the bomb goes off, it doesn't destroy the city. So the adventure ends with the team flying off, wondering that if the creature that is destroyed was the professor, and that we may never know. And that's how the issue ends. Uh, once again, as I said, not a bad issue overall. It's a, I'm undecided. Part of me says it wasn't a bad issue. Part of me says eh, not that great. Again, as I said earlier, I don't know if it's just I know it's coming up. I know the fantastic stories I've got waiting for me or what it is. But overall, all three of these stories have been eh, all right. Not a bad read. And that's it for issue 27. And as I say that, I just now realize that when I began this issue, I called it issue 28. I'm going to pin myself now and say this is actually The Brave and the Bold, issue 27. Issue 28 was actually, as I said previously, the first appearance of The Just League of America. Uh, so as I just said, this is the end of issue 27, people. Ignore the 28 from previously. All right. Uh, now that that's done, we're going to go ahead and move on to the Suicide Squad's appearances in TVs and... Movies, TVs, television, and movies. I read on the, I think it was the wiki page, that at one time there was a possible Suicide Squad TV show being talked about back when the squad was really popular back in the late 80s, early 90s. But apparently from what John Ostinger has said, the ideas he heard were horrible and nothing ever came of it. Oh, it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it could have led to some good stories possibly, but if John Ostinger the man that recreated, redefined the Suicide Squad, said there were horrible ideas, uh, maybe it's better left off dead. The next time they appeared was an animated show, Justice League Unlimited, in the episode entitled Task Force X. In this episode, the field commander was Rick Flagg Jr., who recruited Captain Boomerang, Deadshot, Plastique, and Clock King, who filled Oracle's radio support role for a mission to appropriate the Annihilator automation from the Just League Watchtower on behalf of uh, Project Cadmus. The team succeeds, but Plastique is critically wounded in the process. According to the producers, this episode resulted from the realization that Project Cadmus' organization needed a solid victory to cement itself as a credible threat. The squad was referred to throughout the episode as Task Force X, Task Force X due to concerns that using the word suicide wasn't suitable for children's television. Which I guess would be a good call. I personally don't... Rem I, I've seen all these episodes, but I don't remember this one offhand. I may have to re-download and watch it at some point. Uh, they next appeared on uh, CW Smallville Season 9. The title was Absolute Justice. That was an appearance of both Suicide, suicide Squad and Checkmate. Uh, Amanda Waller in the episode runs Checkmate, and she makes a reference to Suicide Squad. At the end of the episode, Waller shoots the Icicle, who attempted to quit working for her. Uh, the end of the episode also revealed that Tess Mercer, who showed up, I believe in that season, was a Checkmate agent. The Suicide Squad itself is featured in the 10th and final season. Uh, the members who they showed was Rick Flagg, Deadshot, Plastique, and Warp. Halfway through the 10th season, it's revealed that the Suicide Squad has begun working for Chloe Sullivan who, if you were a Smallville fan, you know that's uh, Clark Kent's best friend in the Smallville universe. Speaking of Checkmate in Smallville, uh, they first appeared, like I said earlier, in episode, uh, or season 9, Absolute Justice, and it's also plot in later episodes of season 9. Uh, Amanda, Walla, Amanda Waller is the raking agent using the alias of White Queen, uh, we'll get more on that when we get to Checkmate, how they're set up. The organization is responsible for the prosecution of the Justice Society of America 
at some undefined point in the past, uh, apparently the 60s, leading to their disbanding. In the present, Waller recruits Icicle to attack and kill the Justice League, sorry, the Justice Society members. She does not initially tell him that she intends him to fail, but succeeds in bringing the team back together again so she can use them to battle what she describes as a coming apocalypse. Which DC fans know that that's referring to uh, Darkseid and his planet of apocalypse. Waller manipulates Lois Lane in revealing the existence of the Justice Society in a positive light and has Tess Mercer as one of her agents. She attempts to recruit the team in Checkmate, capturing Green Arrow and luring the Martian Manhunter, and the Blur, as they called him, not one to refer to him as Superman, into her headquarters by threatening the Watchtower in response to an alien invasion of Kandor. But a power cut triggered by Green Arrow allows the Blur to save the Watchtower and escape. The Manhunter then erases Waller's memory of their real faces. In a following episode called Trade, Wealthy business tycoon Maxwell Lord is introduced as the Black King. Uh, Maxwell Lord first appeared in the comics in the Justice League slash Justice League International comics. Later on, went on to become a member of Checkmate in the later series that, again, I wasn't that big of a fan of. Uh, finally, in CW Zero Season 10, I believe it was, second episode... Suicide Squad. The, try that again. Okay, CW's Arrow, Season 2. There was an episode entitled Suicide Squad. The team appeared under the direction of Amanda Waller. Again, this was the CW version of Amanda Waller. Consisting of Deadshot, Shrapnel, Bronze Tiger, and Lila Michaels. Who in the comics, Lila Michaels appeared in the, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths as the monitor's assistant known as Harbinger. Harbinger. Uh, back on the show, John Diggle, which was Arrow's partner, was also a temporary member of the team of Suicide Squad, but he left at the end of this episode. In the episode, Shrapnel is apparently killed by a Waller as a result of abandoning the mission. There is evidence that still more mem members exist, and you can kind of tell this when Diggle's in the prison, you can hear someone in the background, who we can assume is Harley Quinn talking, uh... Diggle breaks in, and him and Lila are arguing, and you hear Harley Quinn's voice in the background saying, You could use need some counseling. I'm a trained therapist. Diggle releases the team again in Season 2 finale, Unthinkable, to help him save Starling City from being bombed to stop Slade Wilson's army. Again, the last half dozen episodes or so of this last season of Vero, the Suicide Squad would show up once in a while, or some of the members would. I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, and that about covers their appearances on TV. Let's move on to movies. Uh, first and most importantly, there's a rumor going around that Warner Brothers is currently developing a movie with Dan Lin producing and Justin Marks writing a script. I'm not familiar with Dan Lin, so I looked up his credentials on uh, IMDb. Uh, he was the executive producer on Terminator Salvation and something called Shorts I'm not familiar with. <laughs> he was also the producer on The Adventure of Lying, The Box, both Sherlock Holmes movies, Gangster Squad, The Lego Movie, and it looks like they're going to do a live-action Archie movie, which he's going to be the producer of. Uh, the Sherlock Holmes movies are pretty good. I thoroughly enjoyed The Lego Movie. Uh, my entire family did. Uh, so I think he might do a good job at it. Uh, the character of Rick Flagg, he appeared in Justice League cartoon called The New Frontier. Uh, in the comic that the movie's based on, the entire squad showed up, but to shorten things up for the movie, because they can't have it as long, they removed him, leaving only Rick Flagg to show up. Also, the squad has appeared, or scheduled to appear, in a new upcoming animated movie called Batman Assault on Arkham. And, according to the wiki, the lineup consists of Deadshot, Harlequin, King Shark, Boomerang, Black Spider, Killer Frost, and, of course, Amanda Waller. Because you can't have the Suicide Squad without Amanda Waller. Well, I guess you can, but it won't be as good. Uh, this movie comes out on DVD and Blu-ray August the 12th of 2014. And from the wiki page, the plot of the movie is 
The Suicide Squad is formed by Amanda Waller with their mission to break into Arkham Asylum and recover top-secret information from the Riddler. The Suicide Squad member Harley Quinn ends up freeing the Joker, who makes plans to blow up Arkham Asylum and Gotham City, causing Batman to spring into action. This is the movie I'm looking forward to. I enjoy the Suicide Squad. I like Batman. Uh, what's not to like? I am sure these are all going to be the CW versions of the characters. Again, I, I would rather if they'd use the pre-52 Amanda Waller. But I'll take what I can get. Anytime the squad shows up, I'm a happy camper. Uh, moving on to video games. Uh, from the Suicide Squad's wiki page, it looks like that DC writer and editor Jeff Johns confirmed in February of 2012 that a video game based on the Suicide Squad is in developments. Uh, also, in the post-credits of Batman Arkham Origins, Amanda Waller recruits Deathstroke into the Suicide Squad, hitting at a possible squad appearance in a future Batman Arkham game, or possibly the aforementioned Suicide Squad game that Jeff Johns had mentioned two years ago. Also, there are several cutscenes in Batman Arkham Origins, Blackgate, that implicate Amanda Waller and the Suicide Squad in the game's Prison Riot plot. Waller and Rift Flag are showing recruiting Bronze Tiger and Deadshot in the post-credits scene. Also, it appears Checkmate shows up on the DC Universe online game. Well, that's our episode for this time. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, feel free to write in and let me know what you think. Uh, next issue, we'll cover the Brave and the Bold's issues 37, 38, and 39, and Action Comics 552, I believe it is, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, again, I haven't read these stories yet. I'm assuming that the Brave and the Bold issues will be more of the same. It looks like they're all written and drawn by the same creative team. While the Action Comics is a Superman story from the 80s, which include the Forgotten Heroes, who Rick becomes a part of. Uh, since it's more of a Superman story, I think I'll like these stories a little bit more than what I have been. And from what I've seen online about this issue... Yeah, the Suicide Squad only appears as a, uh, a flashback story in it. So we'll see what happens. Anyways, guys, until next time, remember to carry on for us. Bye. And thank you for listening to another great episode of Task Force X. I can also be found rambling on my main podcast of Head Speaks, where I rant and rave about movies, comics, geek stuff, and whatever else is bugging me that week. My home on the internet is at headspeaks.com. Links to my blog, which contain follow-up information to this and every headcast, can be found there. Please email me any questions, comments, or concerns to taskforcex at headspeaks.com. That's taskforcex at headspeaks.com, all one word. I am also on Facebook at taskforcex. If you're on Google+, look for taskforcex under People and Pages. All titles and characters discussed are owned and copyrighted by DC Comics. I claim no ownership whatsoever to the Suicide Squad, Checkmate, Task Force X, or any of the other characters mentioned in the show. I'm just a big old fan wanting to spread the Task Force love with everyone else. Be sure to visit your local comic shop and look for the Suicide Squad and Checkmate comics. And while you're there, see what else they have that manages you. Pick up a comic, it's fun. Now, make sure to join us next time for another fun-filled podcast from your friendly neighborhood brotherhead. Until then, I'll see you in the funny pages.